Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone and welcome back to New Books and History, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host Crawford Gribben and today my guest is Jeremy Black. Jeremy's Professor of History at Exeter and we're talking to Jeremy today about his new book, A Brief History of the Mediterranean, just published by Little Brown uh, this year, 2020. Jeremy, congratulations again on the book and welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now, you've been travelling to the Mediterranean for some time. You explain in the book, how did that begin and what kinds of things have you done? Oh, well, you know, I first went there as a child with my parents, and that's many years ago, in fact, over half a century. So I can't remember the exact first year, Um, but uh, I've seen most of it. There are one or two places I haven't been to. I've never had the chance. To be to, to go to Libya, but other than that, uh, I've seen yeah, I've seen the Med, and of course, it's got to be borne in mind that now, uh, in terms of the time it takes to get there, um, it's quicker than actually getting to some other parts of the British Isles. Absolutely. Now, uh, over the course of the last, I suppose, half century, the Mediterranean's attracted some very formidable historians. How have they defined the subject? How, 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 how do we, well, how do we I, think of the Mediterranean as a kind of a subject to write about? Maybe is a better way to put that question. I suppose the most influential historian was Braudel, and he very much looked at the Mediterranean within a context of the sea and the surrounding lands, but very much in the sense of Christian Europe and the southern shore of the Mediterranean, not really of the eastern shore of the Mediterranean. How far you should take Mediterranean culture has been a matter which I think it's fair to say there's been quite a lot of division on, and I think it's fair to say that most European writers have tended to adopt a classical and then Christian Mediterranean, um, and less so looking at the Islamic side. After Browdell, I think it's fair to say there's not been a comparable work. Uh, David Abulafia's book is good, but as with his recent study of the oceans, it's very much more focused on the ancient and medieval world and is particularly weak on the last century. And for myself, I tried in my book... um, to look at the last century as well as the earlier era. I mean, I take very much the view that history is up to the present day and that many of the trends and developments of the present are interesting in their own light and also illuminate the past and are illuminated by the past. So I don't find it very helpful to read a book on, shall we say, any ocean in which the last few uh, pages rushed through the last century and particularly the last 50 years. Hmm. We'll chat about that maybe later on uh, in, in, in our discussion. But your, your book begins with a chapter called Sea and Shores and it takes us back to your interest in geography and long history, deep history. How has geography affected historical events in, in this area, in this sphere? 
Well, uh, geography is obviously crucial in any uh, maritime sphere in particular because uh, currents, prevalent wind directions, uh, submarine geological factors are all extraordinarily important, as is the presence or absence of uh, fresh water on coastal areas and the presence or absence of of areas of agricultural surplus. So, Geography is extraordinarily important. And if you think of the Mediterranean itself, which you could say the same thing about other bodies of water, um, the situation is very different where you've got mountains coming sheer, falling sheer to the sea, to where you've got uh, large, uh, fertile coastal plains. And the latter, particularly um, if fed with... um, uh, fresh water and alluvial soil are the basis for civilization, whereas the former, it's more precarious. Now, the the book begins with in that deep in that deep sense by looking at classical texts and by helping us think about the way in which classical literature shapes our sense of what the Mediterranean is. What what is this idea of the wine dark sea, and and how do these texts from uh, the classical period help us think about it? Well, um, the classical inheritance that is absolutely crucial in our understanding or perception of the Mediterranean is the Greek one, both in its own right and also obviously as mediated by Roman later. What that is interesting is, is that there are other maritime societies around uh, the ancient Mediterranean, most obviously that of Phoenicia, but, you know, Egypt itself. Uh, which have not had that impact. And we can discuss the extent to which um, our perception is affected by Greek views, particularly Greek views of the so-called other to the east, uh, hostility towards Persia, etc., etc. But the key point is that our interpretation of the Mediterranean very much looks back to the Greeks, and of course the foundation story, if you like, um, for Mediterranean culture in the Western tradition is that of the siege of Troy, um, the Iliad, and then the journeys across the Mediterranean of the Odyssey. And um, that has a legacy culturally that might have been different if we had been looking at um, uh, comparable Phoenician work, but there is no comparable Phoenician texts known to survive. So in a sense, we are in part constrained, not just by, as it were, and you know, you know how it is, people these days are obsessed with the idea of sort of, uh, you know, a pernicious Western tradition. I mean, I think actually it's in part worth considering the actual issue of the survival of uh, information from non-Western civilizations. Hmm. And I suppose that reflects in part one of the big themes of the book, which is the effort to move beyond a Northern bias in the way we reconstruct this history. Yes. I mean, I'm very interested in the Mediterranean as a sphere in which a number of different cultures, traditions and civilizations interact. Um, But I'm not doing that in a sense of any sort of bogus anti-Westernism, which is, I think, a way in which sometimes these uh, works are now approached. I'm rather dealing with 
uh, one in which it's just simply that that is the best response to the human geography of the area. Now, another variety of competition that you, you sketch out in the early chapters of the book is the competition between various kinds of Mediterranean religions, a competition of which I suppose Christianity emerges as one of the, but only one of the most dominant uh, religions, and of course it then is challenged by the rise of a new monotheistic religion some centuries after that. What, 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 kinds, of, what kinds of big themes emerge out of this discussion? Well, I think what's very interesting is that Christianity proves very fisiparous, very diverse from the early stages. I mean, if you've read The City of God, you will know a lot of it is about, as it were, obscure Alexandrian heresies. Um, and, I mean, you counterpart Islam and Christianity there. Um, obviously, as we know, there are there is diverse Islamic traditions, most prominently uh, Shia and Sunni. But in practical terms, um, Mediterranean Islam is more monochrome. Would be the wrong word. There are t there are differences between it within it, but it is more uniform than its Christian counterpart. And I think that's very very interesting. So um, the extent to which this reflects. Uh, ecclesiological, uh, um, theological, social patterning, the extent to which it's dependent upon political control, all of those are subjects worthy of consideration and assessment. Um, and another point, of course, going a long way forward is the extent to which um, both Christianity and Judaism continues under uh, Islamic rule, but there is much less Islam under Christian rule. And the consequences of that contrast, again, is, I think, very interesting in terms of the diversity of the, of the Mediterranean, and indeed what one might call the development of proto-nationalism in a number of parts of it. But I think religion is an important theme there, um, but I think the mistake sometimes made if one's looking at it from the modern counterpoint is to contrast Christianity and Islam, because Christianity from a very early stage was very diverse in, its in the Mediterranean context. And I suppose one of the arguments you also make in the book is that Islam too is divided and that both religious groupings play off each other by exploiting each other's divisions. Yes, Islam in the Mediterranean context is more a question of division politically than the equivalent of the Shia-Sunni divide. But yes, it is divided. I mean, the um, Abbasid Caliphate um, ceases to act as, as it were, a gathering in of Islam, uh, of, the, of, the, of, the ch of the children of Islam in the Mediterranean context. And you have... Uh, political diversity with, for example, the Fatimids in Egypt, um, and you also have uh, ethnic diversity in the sense that Turkic peoples, um, most significantly, though not only the Seljuk Turks and later the Ottoman Turks, um, both come to play a very significant role. But in the case of both the Seljuk Turks and the Ottoman Turks, they don't really bring in a new type of Islam. They, in a sense, seek to incorporate themselves to the existing pattern. 
How does this help us think about what happens during the Crusades? Well, the Crusades, in the Crusades, I think there is a multiplicity of players, both culturally and politically, on the Christian side, the most obvious, but this is by no means the only major players, are Byzantium, the Eastern Roman Empire, with its, if you wish to use that term, Greek Orthodoxy, and um, the papacy and those who follow it. Uh, though those are not the only players, of course. Um, Armenians, for example, are another another player. And on the Islamic side, uh, you have uh, rivalry uh, between Egyptian-based powers, uh, Near Eastern-based powers, and eventually in the 13th century, um, the eruption of the Mongols, and they fight it out with another new 13th century power, the Mamluks. And one of the tendencies people often have is to look at a, if you like, a um, European conception of the Crusades and not to think about it in terms of um, political and other tensions within the Islamic world. And we could take that a stage further. Um, you know, there is an enormous tension in when people look at the Ottoman Empire to imagine that the Ottomans were primarily concerned to overrun Christendom, capture Vienna, which, of course, they besieged in 1529 and 1683. Well, you know, that was important at some, some uh, junctures, but... Uh, I think you could more accurately think of the Ottomans as a um, a dynasty which vies for control in the world of Islam, uh, successfully so against the Mamluks, who they destroy in the 15-teens, creating themselves as a very major Near Eastern and Mediterranean power because they take over what we would now call uh, Egypt, Israel, Syria, Lebanon, and then expand their power across North Africa. But also, um, having done that, um, seek to fight it out with the Safavids, the Shia, um, who have taken over themselves what we would now call Iraq and Iran. And in many senses, that is a very important point because it emphasizes the degree to which there is a fallacy of thinking of Medi Mediterranean history as, as it were, self-contained. Because the Ottoman Empire looks east beyond the Mediterranean um, with its uh, uh, frequent campaigns and attempts to gain control and then consolidate control of places like Baghdad or Mosul, as it looks at anywhere in the Mediterranean world. And I think actually this is a flaw with both uh, the Braudel approach and I, you know, the Abulafri approach. They're both distinguished works, but I think they are both very limited in having a, a, a sufficient understanding of these wider contexts. And of course, there are um, economic and religious counterparts as well. And I, I suppose that is the challenge of framing the subject, isn't it? In some ways, the history of the Mediterranean could be a history of everything, given that it is, you know, the cradle of so much of what we consider to be uh, the civilizations and cultures with which we're most familiar. H how practically, given, given the kind of extendability of this, how practically do you frame this as a subject? Well, I think that's a very good point. But the key problem is to is the mistake if you assume that the 
causation and cause and consequences within the Mediterranean are necessarily primary for the powers concerned. So in other words, yes, of course, with any form of history, there are issues, as you know, in terms of spatial segregation, how we distinguish it geographically, and also chronological, you know, where do we start it, where do we end? And obviously those are fluid divides. The mistake is not to try and artificially focus on a particular area uh, whilst accepting that it has wider influences. The mistake is to assume that that particular area it explains what is happening of itself in that area. Hmm. And the point, the reason I cite the Ottomans is that, you know, if you're looking at somebody like you know, Selim I or Suleiman the Magnificent, it does not help if you put the Mediterranean foremost as their area of concern. Doesn't mean you can't write the history of the Mediterranean. Doesn't mean you can't write a chapter, if you so wish, on the Ottoman Mediterranean. But what it does mean is that you have to write or look at um, Selim or Suleiman in its wider context. Now, I mean, you know, many of your listeners are American. Let me give you a classic um, example of this. Uh, I did a book some years ago on the War of 1812 in which I made the point that, um, and I tried to look at it in this wider context, as well as to discuss what actually happens in North America, and I made the point that once Napoleon had lost in Russia in 1812, the Americans, the basis on which they had gone into the war, which is that Britain and the anti-French side was weak, collapsed. And that thereafter, it didn't actually really matter what happened in North America, whether the Americans had done better or worse or particular battles, because the sands were running out for them. And that's why they desperately started to seek peace once they heard that Napoleon had come a cropper. Um, and you cannot understand that unless you see it in its wider context. Or again, for American listeners, it's a classic American folly of assuming that Napoleon III got out of Mexico because the Americans deployed troops uh, after the American Civil War. The Americans got out of Mexico. Sorry, the, Napoleon got out of Mexico, Napoleon III, because he was concerned about the rise of Prussia and their success against Austria in the 1866 war. So you cannot, you can by all means write a book about North America and the struggle for influence there, but it only makes sense if you don't assume that the prime issues in causation are ones established within a specific area. And that is what I would say as well for the Mediterranean. The Mediterranean is fascinating. I've tried to capture its fascination historically, but you shouldn't assume that the things that happen there are necessarily the first priority for the state. So I go on and talk, as you know, about the establishment of British imperial and naval power there. And, you know, by the uh, end of the 19th century, the British are in uh, Gibraltar and uh, Malta and Cyprus, and they're controlling the Suez Canal. And these are all important. And there is a major dynamic for British power on the route to India, etc., etc., etc. Yes, but that doesn't mean that for British governments, it's necessarily the foremost geopolitical concern. It is an important geopolitical concern, but not the only one. Hmm. Well, maybe come to some of those themes in, in just a second, Jeremy. But you, you've taken us into the 18th, 19th century uh, very nicely. 
Mediterranean becomes a, 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 a principal location for the Grand Tour in the 18th century. What, what's the Grand Tour all about? Why are people going into this area? Or why are they being attracted into this area? And, and sometimes why are they fleeing Britain to get there? Well, the elite, social elite, principally male but also female, um, in the 18th century see a role for their education, and that is the prime official rationale for it. They're finishing off as gentlemen and ladies of going to, in particular, Italy, though Paris as well. And as you say, I mean, Britain is particularly wealthy in the 18th century and indeed the 19th century. So the British are very prominent in this. But, you know, you get comparably Russians or Swedes, French and so on, also traveling for both uh, education and pleasure. Uh, within Italy itself, and I discussed this in this book, but I've also written a book on Italy in the Grand Tour. Within Italy itself, tourists tend to go to uh, major cities and by the end of the century also to classical sites. They are not going for the beach, uh, nor are they going for the mountains. Um, and the principal change within the 18th century is that whereas at the outset of our period, uh, Naples had been a vice-regal um, seat, but not a court of an independent ruler, and it, most British tourists, therefore, had not gone as far as Naples. Um, after the War of the Polish Succession and the um, cadet branch of the Bourbons established themselves as a dynasty in Naples, and Naples gets a royal court and comparably an opera house and palaces and this sort of thing, then tourists go further south, and that, of course, is also encouraged by the cult of um, Pompeii and Herculaneum. Um, but if you're looking at tourist itineraries, very few go to Apulia, Calabria, uh, Sicily or Sardinia. And further east in the Mediterranean, um, when it's a question of uh, being on the other side of what was known as the plague cordon, the uh, bubonic plague still, is in the uh, Balkans, you get far fewer uh, tourists going. I mean, there are some, and as I've mentioned, I've done several books on the Grand Tour, and I've mentioned people that go to places like Egypt and uh, around the Eastern Med, uh, but there are not all that many in this period. Now, you mentioned tourism there and cultural discovery. Should we think of Byron as a tourist? Uh, well, he was certainly out for personal self-discovery. That's an interesting thing. He, um, you know, again, as you know, I, I, I do talk about him in the Med book. Um, I mean, he has a purpose there um, and a mission, um, which is other than that of just simply looking at uh, of works of art. Uh, no, I wouldn't say him as a tourist. I would see him as a sort of adventurer. He is more of an early 19th century, capital R, romantic equivalent of a crusader. Um, that, and um, rather than, uh, you know, the equivalent of somebody... Um, uh, shall we say, being you know, being a genteel presence in presence in some salon of Sir Horace Mann in Florence in the 1770s. So no, I would I would say uh, Byron deliberately goes beyond the bounds of what is normal tourism in terms of both where he goes to, um, what he does, and indeed one has to add because he dies there, what mm. happens to him. Mm, exactly, yeah. Um, American influences, we, we, we're, we're touching here on, on cultural spheres. How does the Mediterranean 
be impacted by the American cultural sphere in this period? Um, well, in the 19th century, um, there are independent, as it were, uh, aspects of America. I mean, it's certainly not for a kickoff in the 1800s. Um, the Americans are taking a naval presence on the coast of Libya um, in their uh, campaigns against the Barbary pirates. But in many senses, the, the American presence in the Mediterranean is very, very secondary to the, uh, the European ones. The principal distant power is Britain. So you've got the local European powers, and the French, of course, take Algiers in 1830 and begin the establishment of their North African empire as a result of that. And you've got as the principal distant power, Britain. Uh, Russia had tried to play a role in the late 18th century, sent a fleet into the Med, pursued interests there, but it's Britain as the principal one. America's influence is not primarily that of a military power in the Med until World War II. Uh, there are episodes when the Americans play a role, but it's very, very minor until World War II. Um, and as a result of that, America becomes influential in the Med in a period in which it is not seeking um, territorial gains or settlements under its total control. So it's not like in the Caribbean um, in the period of Teddy Roosevelt and thereafter. It's not like America in the Pacific. Um, so you get major American presences, you know, obviously places like Naples with the fleet, uh, but you do not have a period of colonial control. Which I suppose leads us to the big question. What does James Bond tell us about the Mediterranean? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I I have a, I, as you know, and you're pulling it, pulling it, you know, there is a strand <laughs> in my book in which I look at cultural, cultural references, cultural influences, and I go, as you know, I look at people like uh, Homer, um, I look at various other classical writers, I look at Cervantes, Shakespeare, and so on. Um, and I discuss uh, James Bond, for example, in his writing about um, Istanbul. Um, I think it's fair to say that the Mediterranean had become an, it, really interesting to British writers about, of the adventure story uh, in a period just before Fleming is writing. The best example is Eric Ambler, and Eric Ambler is very, uh, it has an influence in Fleming's style. I mean, I also cite uh, one of the other uh, writers of the 30s, but Ambler, I think, is the one that is most important. And it's, in a way, a notion of the Mediterranean as exotic, but an exoticism that is slightly disturbing, slightly sinister sometimes, certainly corrupt. I mean, I discuss in my book uh, T.S. Eliot, The Wasteland, and the... Um, the the Smyrna merchant in there and the reference to his homosexuality and and again a sight a sense of uh, of decadence um, and I think it's quite interesting as to how 
cultures are presented. Now, the actual degree to which this is, quote, whatever you mean by accurate, um, is not a tremendously helpful concept. I'm looking here at the cultural constructions of the Mediterranean by outsiders as much as by insiders uh, at those points, rather than using those to say, well, this is what actually was going on. Well, Jeremy, it's always a pleasure talking to you about your work. Can you tell us what your next project might be? Well, in this series, so these are, the, as you say, the little brown brief histories. So I've brought out now um, Italy, Spain and Portugal, now the Mediterranean we've been discussing. Um, in that series next year, there's the Caribbean and there is also strategy in World War II, those little brown so-called brief histories. I mean, they're about 80 to 90,000 words. I'm not sure how brief that is. Um, I've got with um, uh, Indiana a history of uh, tanks and tank warfare, and I've got with um, um, Thames and Hudson a history of France. They're all coming out. And then with Indiana the following year, and currently I'm sitting here doing the proofs for it, um, which is why I'm tired and set up, because I've been doing it from very early this morning, or last night, depending upon your point of view, um, and England in the age of Jane Austen. Wonderful. Well, that sounds wonderful. Good. Um, Jeremy, thank you very much for your time, and thanks for coming on to the show Pleasure. to talk about the book. Really appreciate and it. I, and I, I, I think what I would really like listeners to take away from this is that if you are writing the history of an area, and I've tried to do it in each of the places I've written about, you should not only be writing about, as it were, quote, what you might consider the factual dimensions, but how it engages with the imagination, whether it is the fall of Troy, whether it is James Bond in Istanbul, whether it is Shakespeare writing about uh, the, you know, um, much Ado About Nothing, for example, which is set in Messina. You should, or Comedy of Errors, which is set in Ephesus, you should be engaging with these cultural tropes and themes because they are important in how we understand an area. And I find it very disappointing that so many books on areas uh, written by historians do not engage with that cultural dimension. Yes, absolutely. Well, Jeremy, thanks for your time and take care. And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and History, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. 